Ah, the start of the week and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The uh, amount it costs now even to run the 12 miles into the city of Limerick to shop. It's just everything, you know. It's it's not that it has sneaked up on us. It's that it has jumped out at us like... Something scary in Halloween. I remember a couple of incidents of being really embarrassed um, as a child and as a teen. And I think that's where the panic attacks and social anxiety started. He sat across the table from David Lloyd George, realised the British were not budging on the elements in the constitution that had caused the treaty split, and he knew then that his hopes for peace had crumbled to dust before him and that civil war in Ireland was now inevitable. And to start, some big numbers and food for thought when restaurateur Alan O'Reilly called Joe on the live line. Alan O'Reilly is owner of Kelly and Cooper's. It's a restaurant, well-known restaurant in Black Rock in uh, County Dublin. Alan, good afternoon. Hi, Joe. Good afternoon. Okay, tell, read out the figures and let people's jaw drop. Uh, the bill for fifty-seven days was thirty-eight thousand two hundred fifty euro. That's your ESB bill. And before that? I think the month before that was just under 3,000. So this is for two months nearly? Yeah, it's by month I think, yeah. 38,282 and 91 cent. Yeah, I thought it was two fit, yeah. I'm kind of still processing it, but there you go. And it's not a mistake? No, it's not a mistake. And what are you going to do? Well, we're going to pay us. We have no option. I mean, and they have been quite fair about it. You know, they're saying, um, well, you can spread it out over possibly two years, you know. But I suppose January, February is our next bill. So we, we really we need to know what that bill is going to be. Yeah. You know, I can say, oh, yeah, I'll pay you five grand a month on top or whatever. But sure, if the bills are coming in like that all the time, it's how do not going to ca- work. How do you catch up? Well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was... Uh, I was telling my brother, who's an accountant, about it, and uh, he tweeted it, apparently, on, on Friday or Saturday, I think. Yeah. And he was telling me it just went bananas on Twitter. It works so, out at 600, you're paying 671 euro and 63 cents a day for electricity. How big is Kelly and Cooper's? It's not that big. Don't forget, that's just the electricity bill we've yeah, got as well. I know, I know, I know. I'll get to that in a sec. But how many how many covers? How many tables? Well, we're, we're we're a gastro pub, a pub and a restaurant. Okay. Uh, so I'd say downstairs we seat maybe eighty people, and upstairs thirty. So it's not that big. Yeah. And how long are you in business, Alan? Uh, we're here four years. Um, have you ever seen? I'm, I'm in the business forty years. You okay. know, I haven't seen anything like the um, inflation that's going on at the minute. You know. Yeah. Your gas bill. Yeah, that went up. That was normally one six. It went up to five and a half thousand. Wow! So it went from one thousand six hundred to five thousand five hundred. Yeah. In one jump. In one jump, yeah. Wow. That's a month. That's not bi-monthly. That's monthly. Cost of butter. Give us more examples. Cost of butter. Yeah, well, that's one thing I've noticed. Um, a twenty-pound case of butter. That's twenty individual pounds. We were buying at forty-three euros. Okay. The case, and that's now gone up to 128 euros a case. That's gone up threefold. Yeah, threefold. Butter has gone up threefold. Threefold, yeah. Everybody in the industry is talking about it, but I mean, it was—it's about 
six or seven months ago this happened. It just started increasing, increasing, increasing. Now, I got somebody on the phone um, last week saying, look, I can get you a case of butter at 100 euros, you know. And I said, oh, really, great. Let's do that. So, But uh, cream is the same. Cream is doubled in price. Milk has gone up. Uh, meat, nearly doubled in price. Um, uh, you know, ribeye, sirloin, yeah, all that kind yeah. of stuff has just jumped up. Chickens, it's incredible. Chickens have gone, like, alubas. I don't know why chicken. And they're saying, oh, it's to do with the Ukraine war and feed and stuff like that. I don't know. But mm-hmm. everything has just gone up uh, crazy-wise. And if you read the papers, the patients are only about 9 or 10. It's actually more than that, I think, certainly commercially. Sure, those, those percentages uh, are astronomical. Have you ever, you've never seen anything like this in four decades? No, never, ever. And have you had to take anything off the menu, Adam? Because yeah, yeah, we had to take ribeye off because, you know, in order to sell it um, at a reasonable price, uh, we were selling it for 26 And, uh, you know, we put it up to 28 But then it just got so expensive. Uh, our accountant says we'd have to be charging 45 uh, just oh. to get a small margin on it. And people don't want to pay that money, so we just took it off the menu. So you were, you ne- you were nearly going to have to double double the price yeah. of steak, ribeye yeah. steak. Yeah, because it actually, the price of the steak doubled itself, you know? Yeah. So when we're retailing it off, when we're selling it um, in, in the pub, people don't want to pay that price for steak, so I took it off, you know. And I put on sirloin, and that's just gone through the roof as well. But uh, you, we can't just turn around and, uh, and double our prices or, or increase our prices because we have no customers, and that's the kind of the catch, you know. And Alan's annual bill will be eye-watering. Have you worked out what your new annual bill will be? 250,000 if it yeah. keeps going the way it's going. It's going to be two. If you multiply your daily figure by 365, it's 245,000. Yeah. 144,95. A quarter of a million just yeah. for electricity. Yeah. Can you survive? We're going to have to. I mean, I work 80 hours, 90 hours a week, seven days a week. You know, I have. Um, with 15 full-time, 10 part-time staff, 25 staff, you know? Yeah, but yeah. you can see the inflationary pressures. We've did two pay rises already this year. You know, people are paying rent. Their rents are going up. The price of food is going up. And it's making it very difficult for everybody. And well, that has a knock-on effect with people going out, you yeah, know? Of course. Because their disposable income isn't there, you know? So it'll be a very interesting first quarter next year, let me say. What do you mean? Well, I think that, you know, uh, whatever, but this is December yeah. and it's yeah. quieter than normal. Can you imagine what January and February is going to be like? Yeah. And you think this December is quieter? I certainly do, yeah. If I look yeah. back at the same time last year, it's quieter now. I mean, the next, the last two weeks, I suppose, is busy, but certainly I haven't seen it as quiet as this in a long time. Even yeah. with the restrictions last year, I think it was much busier. And since, I think it's since March, since the war in the Ukraine and the Brexit stuff, it's just gone, it's just gone nuts. Yeah. Um, The war in Ukraine. Well, that's all we're hearing from suppliers, you know. It's impossible to get anything in because of the war in the Ukraine and because of Brexit and all this kind of stuff, you know. Okay, that is very demoralising. But you're you're going to try and keep going. Of course, we're going to fight through. We have to... You know, we're pouring all our personal resources into it to keep it going because, 
you know, means a lot to us, uh, this business, and um, it's a livelihood as well as everything else, you know. Um, and you're used, we're all, well, we're all kind of used to inflation of two, three the last few years, and, and previously you'd be 10 or 11%, but never, never inflation in the hundreds of percentage points. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit nuts, all right. Um, I suppose there is factors like, as I say, the war. And do you, get, do you get any help? Any state uh, help? No. no, I mean, the government came out with something in the budget where they would uh, said that they would give 40% of the increase in the raise of your rate, but okay. they haven't formalised it yet. Oh, have they not? No. Yeah. They're working on it. But they said they'd definitely help out somehow, but uh, as yet... Um, our accountants are saying no when they inquired about it. They haven't actually, haven't uh, formalised it yet. It's on the way, apparently. Yeah. Hopefully soon. Well, something's on the way. You could be on the way out. I know you're. <laughs> I know you're not. You're not going to give in. But you, does your bank manager or whatever you I don't know? Do these bank managers actually exist? But like, does your accountant or whatever say to you, "Listen, Alan, face face reality." Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, we had that conversation this morning. Yeah. So, um, and what did you say? You said what you just said to me. I've been doing it for 40 years. I'll do yeah. it. Head down, arse up, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Keep fair, going. Fair play to you. What are your bookings like now coming up to Christmas? As I said, the next couple of weeks, the, the, the last two weeks, Christmas Eve is very busy. I mean, um, that's regular customers from last year. And that last two weeks is, is fairly booked. But uh, this week isn't. You know, and the beginning of next week isn't, you know. Um, But we get there. I'm sure people are just holding on, you know, everybody's, my own um, uh, opinion is everybody's just hanging on, you know, and picking their dates to go out. That's Alan, then pensioner Catherine called Joe about her electricity bill. Just to say to you that similarly it is affecting the, the ordinary Joe housewife or shopper, let's put it that way, in the yeah. street and anyone who has obviously got bills coming through the door, I would normally allow in my budget for an ESB bill anything from 150 to 170. Okay. Now, if I was away on holidays, I'd expect the lower. But, um, you know, I would prepare to have it covered in my account because it's paid for my account, my, my banking account. But um, it jumped from 169, which would be the kind of highest, really, in recent mm. times, to 289. Okay. <laughs> I really had a heart attack when it came through the door, but however, so I'm that- one of the lucky ones. My husband and I are pensioners, and, you know, we live a very... Not not restricted, but yeah. we don't live the high life by any means, and I, I budget in advance for bills that are going to come through the door because um, I'm of a generation, as is my husband, whereby you pay pay whatever is owed and you live on the rest. But for instance, now, um, that's the ESB bill and that's a definite. That's going to come no matter what once you use it. But I I drink um, a particular uh, cheap brand of water with a little bit of flavour in it and I was buying it in the supermarket yeah. all along now for quite a number of years for in or around 35 cent. Okay. It jumped from 35 cent to 55 overnight 
the same with butter. Butter was mm-hmm. coming in at the cheap butter now. The, like I would buy, I would yeah, shop around the, as best the, I could. The and brand, the yeah. cheapest pound of butter that I could buy was coming in at around two nineteen. Okay. Now there used to be offers on in some of the supermarkets that you'd get it maybe at a certain time. One yeah, week it yeah. might be a little cheaper to be on offer. But that that went from um, two nineteen to I think it jumped the first week it jumped was two forty five. Okay. But it is now three at the cheapest that I can buy it is three forty five. And you heard what no, I, I couldn't keep yeah. I couldn't keep that up because yeah. It's it's kind of crazy when you add them all together. It's okay if it's only one item, but it isn't. It's it's on the smallest little things that you kind of take for granted. And um, I I mean I just don't know. I mean I would be I'm the person that looks after the finances in this house, and you mm-hmm. know we, we we would never have gone kind of mad over what we could afford. We would owe a few bob maybe to the credit union, but. Yeah. Do you know, like, it's, it's just crazy. You, is there anything you've cut back on? Sorry, Joe, I'm having trouble okay, hearing is there you. A, is there anything you've cut back on? Oh, I've cut back on, we've cut back on loads of things. Um, I used to turn the immersion on maybe for a half an hour, uh, depending now on, um, you yeah. know, what it was yeah. needed for. Yeah, yeah. I'd turn it on automatically for a half an hour on the clock every day. I, I don't do that anymore. And and that was just a half an hour. And <laughs> um, you know, um, we we really wouldn't travel. We ha- we do have a car, but um, the the uh, amount it costs now, even to run the twelve miles into li- the city of Limerick to shop, is you y- you wouldn't instead of doing it every week now. You ju- we just try and do it maybe once every three weeks, or yeah. if necessary, once every maybe two weeks. It's just it. It's just everything, you know. It's it it. It's not that it has sneaked up on us. It's that it has jumped out at us like yeah, something scary in Halloween. That's Catherine on the live line with Joe Duffy. Now, brace yourself, we're in for a cold snap. Now, Met Erin has issued a cold weather warning for later this week. And for more on what we can expect, I'm joined by Evelyn Cusack, Head of Forecasting at Met Erin. Evelyn, thank you very much for joining us morning. this morning. Tell us, first of all, where this weather is coming from and, and when it's going to arrive here. OK, so the next uh, couple of days, not too bad, just normal average weather. And then on Wednesday night, a so-called cold front is going to move down over Ireland and that's going to introduce Arctic air. Uh, The air mass will be coming directly down from the Arctic and so that's for uh, down into all of Northern Europe and down over Ireland and the UK as well. And that's going to introduce very cold uh, weather for Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and next Monday, possibly longer, but we're certainly, it'll be, it'll last out through the weekend and into the early days of next week. So by that, Claire, we have daytime temperatures really close enough to zero, just low single figures at best. And the nighttime temperatures will be gradually dropping down. Now we're going to get some frost tonight and tomorrow night, but then as the week progresses, as we get into the Arctic air, air temperatures dropping minus four, minus five, and then ground temperatures 
temperatures maybe minus six, minus seven, that sort of thing. Okay, so very cold. And is this much colder than you would expect at this time of year? Well, not much colder, but it is it is a cold spell. Um, we haven't had these temperatures for uh, three years now. So uh, it is, you know, a winter spell. And that's why we've issued that advisory. Okay. And today and tomorrow uh, will be a very, you know, good opportunity for making preparations, uh, maybe around your property or whatever, and getting ready your car, etc. And there's a huge amount of information on winterready.ie. That's uh W-I-N-T-E-R-R-E-A-D-Y that's all one word Mm -hmm. dot I-E and people get lots of advice and uh, if you're in town or whatever drop into the uh, local library or the HSE and they actually have hard copies you know in booklet form but it's freely available winterready.ie So what what we're preparing then for, for icy conditions as opposed to hail and sleet and snow is that right? Okay, good question. Uh, well, well, Wednesday night we will get uh, some precipitation, as we say, with the cold front moving southwards over Ireland. So Donegal likely to get snow on Wednesday night. Northern Ireland, Cavan, Monaghan, maybe uh, this, maybe parts of Sligo, Leitrim, Mayo, you know, pushing down. But the uh, the uh, precipitation dying out so it's unlikely to get down to Dublin or Cork or or even Galway do you know what I mean Mm -hmm. so over the northern areas there will definitely be some snow on Wednesday night and then that will freeze over generally uh, for subsequent nights not a lot of uh, snow showers the odd snow flurry is likely but it looks like it's going to be mainly dry certainly uh, right through over the weekend that may change for next week but um the local authorities are well prepared actually we're having a, a meeting with them all at uh, three o'clock today uh, they started their preparations on Friday and I believe there's lots of salt around but uh, Ireland has a huge network of secondary roads and, and tertiary roads or whatever and it's you know obviously not possible to grit them all so even though the weather itself will be dry it's going to be a dry air mass uh, dew point temperatures minus four that kind of thing uh, um, the ground is super saturated. It's quite waterlogged after an exceptionally wet November. It is at this time of year anyway. So you can also get trickles down. The ground is damp. You can get trickles down from the sides of hills and that will freeze over. So we don't actually need rain or the actual precipitation to for the roads to turn icy. Yeah. And that's, I think, what we mean by black ice when the actual water actually just freezes over. So for the second half of this week and over the weekend, and preparations for journeys, especially off the motorways. I mean, it is it is very winter, a winter spell. And that's why Metairn has this advisory out. And we are likely, as we get closer to Thursday and Friday, perhaps be issuing low temperature warnings. At what point do they come into effect? What's the threshold? Uh the threshold, uh, well, generally we don't issue warnings before three days ahead. Mm-hmm. So uh, really uh, we'd want uh, widespread ground temperatures of about minus four, not just in the odd spot because we'll get that tonight in places. Otherwise in a cold spell we'd have a warning out permanently. But this is for extensive frost right across the country, you know, low temperatures. So th- that's that sort of thing with icy patches. Yeah, we need this warning and, and this advice to prepare more than ever because we've had so such a mild November, yeah. Evelyn. We're just not used to these yeah. conditions. 
Yeah, and you're, Claire, we've had, like the last few winters have been very, very mild. So it is going to be a bit of a shock if, uh, um, you know, with the heating and, you know, people worried about the heating and everything, it really is going to be very... One good thing, though, we think is that there's not going to be a huge amount of wind, you know, because it's due to high pressure. So hopefully, even though certainly there will be some some wind chill, uh, temperatures will certainly feel below zero, but there won't be that biting, uh, really bad wind, we think, anyway, mm. hopefully. Met Aaron's Evelyn Cusack from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show, the nostalgic sound of tapping keys. Vintage typewriter collector Leo Malloy dropped in to see Ray. I'm waiting for a ding. Ah, there you go. Hey, hey, Leo Malloy, you're welcome to the studio. Thanks so much for coming in with your typewriter. Thank you for having me. Yes. So vintagetypewriters.ie. Uh, you are a typewriter enthusiast. I certainly am. Yes, and I'm an enthusiast and a, and a, and more. And yeah, yeah. So you've turned a hobby into a job. Basically, yeah. yeah. That's it. It's been a lifelong hobby of mine, and uh, just in the last few months, I've decided to take it on and make it a career. Yeah. Uh, tell us about your first typewriter. My first typewriter. Yeah. Uh, first typewriter I got in 1991. I was going to bring it in, but I bought this one in instead. Okay. <laughs> it was a gift from my best friend, Brian. Um, he gave me this black box that looked like a miniature suitcase. I had no idea what was in it. And I just opened it up. It was a 1940s Royal Quiet Deluxe. And uh, it was just a beautiful typewriter. I fancied myself a bit of a writer in my youth. And uh, I just fell in love with it since then and then I became a, a, an on and off collector sporadically through my 20s and 30s and it was a hobby that went dormant after that yeah. uh, for a few while whatever life got in the way as, as it does and um, it just rekindled it about four or five years ago I just started collecting them again and more in the mind of learning about them tinkering with them repairing them getting to know the different models the different makes the different eras and it's just one of those things that grows and evolves like any hobby, I suppose. How many have you got at home now? My personal collection, I, I try and keep that below 20. OK. Um, but I have I have quite a few shelves full in my uh, garage that are ready to be restored for sale. Yeah. Uh, uh, so this is what you've you've self-taught yourself to... Yeah, well, it's, it's to rejuvenate them. Yeah, there aren't any cor- them. there aren't any courses in <laughs> in typewriter repair. <laughs> Maybe I'll start one. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just something that each each typewriter that I've had, and I've had dozens and dozens and dozens over the years, um, and each one presents its own challenge. So each one is like a little lesson that I have to learn, figure something out. Yeah, each time I work on one. It's sort of the, the the vinyl of writing, is it? I guess so. It's kind of like the film of photography. Yes. You, you know, and, and it's... The slow cooking of food. The, the slow <laughs> cooking, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's something that... Um, I think there's a nostalgia that attracts people to them. But there's also something interesting that I find children get attracted to them very quickly. Anytime a child's in the house, they go straight for the typewriter and they want to... They yeah. want to look at it, you know, and it's not nostalgia for them. 
Because no, of course, because there's no memory of it. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it's nostalgia yes, for yes, old yes. people yeah, like me, yes, yeah. because I learned how to type on a typewriter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, but children, they like to see that actual the, the type bars moving and the keys and they hear the sound and they see the letters the on the paper. Yes, yes. And it's just fascinating. So it's action, consequence, something. Exactly. Result, and action, consequence, result. Exactly. It's it's very organic and real yeah. and, and deliberate. Of course, it's, it's it's the same with the you know if there's a piano anywhere, nobody can pass by a piano without doing that. Plink, plink. Maybe go with chopsticks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the same with a typewriter, isn't it? It you're, is. It's like oh right. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it works. It's like surprise, what's that, surprise. What's that yeah, button yeah, do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it says A. The, the likelihood is that it's going to be an A. Yeah. And you you alluded there that you've only come to it as a full-time job recently and and life sort of took over and forced your hand on that one a little bit yeah that's that's a good way to put it i suppose um i've put it a lot of ways but not like that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah about a year ago i had a, a an aneurysm that i was not aware of burst and i had a, a full-on brain hemorrhage um which resulted in the neurologist suggesting that i take a year off to recover because I nearly didn't see 2022. So it just made me reassess what was going on in my life. You know, I had a very stressful job. So I decided to quit the job with the help of my wife. Well, with the support of, or the encouragement or the insistence of. <laughs> or all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> yeah. So we just decided that, that um, this hobby that I always, you know, I always joked, you know, if I could make a living working on typewriters, then you know, that would be the dream. Yeah. And so it just was, it was kind of, like you said, my hand was forced. So I decided, well, I'll just try it. And it's working yeah. out. It's working out. It's early days. Yeah. You know? So who is buying vintage typewriters these days? I was surprised at that because um, I thought, like myself, young aspiring writers would be the, the target market. But I get a lot of inquiries from parents who are looking for typewriters for their children. Their children are requesting a vintage typewriter. I'm talking about children between the ages of nine and 12, primarily. And I don't know where it's coming from, but the parents are excited. I'm enthusiastic. It's not a screen. It's not, you know, they're not looking for a phone. They want a vintage typewriter right. to type on. Someone because they, they write stories and they want a typewriter to write stories on. Some of them have pen pals and they send letters. You know, all that stuff, which is, is refreshing to hear that there's another generation looking for them. But there's also writers. I have retired journalists who want to have a typewriter because that's what they learned on. I've, you know, it's, it's a huge mix because, mm. and we're all like, we're all individuals and there's so many different types of typewriters, which is why I don't have an online shop as such, because I like to get to know somebody, what they want out of the typewriter yeah. and find the right typewriter. You have to explain them. that a little bit now. So, have to explain that. Yeah, as in, what do you want out of your typewriter? Well, if somebody says, I want a, I want a typewriter because I want to, you know, some people use it for arts and crafts. Some people use it to, um, someone recently bought a typewriter for me to fix because they use it to make labels for their, for their essential oils and products. Um, so I would just say, you know, in a lot of us, the aesthetics, like this is a pre-war machine, you know, things made before 1940s. What's the name of it? This is a Remington Portable. Right. Um, actually, funnily enough, there is a three-part series called Beyond the Bullets on RTE recently. This makes a cameo. It was it was hired as a prop. Right. So it, they wanted a, a, a period-specific typewriter. So this is a 1920s Remington. So 
that's part of your private collection, so it's not for sale. This one isn't for sale? Yes. This is right. my private collection, yes. Okay. Um, so every, yeah, every, the, everything has a price or does it well, not? Well, you know, everything's for sale, some people would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as, as was, this isn't listed. Right, okay. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what sort of yeah. price are we talking about? Like the pre-war machines like this generally would be anywhere from 380 and then it's how long a piece of string is. It can go up. It depends on collectability. They they tend to be more pricey because there's a lot more involved getting them working again. They're yeah. rarer. There's, there's there's just more difficulties in them. And then you have mid-century machines and onwards post-war. In the 50s, different materials started to become more common, like aluminium, plastics, and, and mass production. Typewriters became... Uh, a standard for college students, so there, there were a there's a lot more of them around. There was a different stuff. use for them, yeah, yeah a different yeah. demand for them yeah. at that time. Yeah. So they would be less. They would be, you know, be two sixty to three fifty. Leo Malloy from the Ray Darcy Show. And on Morning Ireland, Shane McElhatton was marking the drafting of the Constitution one hundred years ago. Tomorrow marks the 100th anniversary of a significant day in Irish history. On that day, the 1922 Constitution of the Irish Free State was endorsed simultaneously in the Doyle and Westminster. Today, legal and constitutional history experts are gathering at the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin for a conference to mark that anniversary. The hotel is the venue because it was in a conference room at the Shelburne that the Constitution was drafted. The room is now called the Constitution Room and has been preserved almost unchanged for 100 years. The series editor for the Decade of Commemorations, Shane McElhatton, joins us from there. Good morning, Shane. Yes, good morning, Rachel. You're joining me here in the Constitution Room of the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin, and I'm sitting at the very table using the very chairs that were used by the drafters. Simply put, the 1922 Constitution is our state's birth cert. When it came into effect on December the 6th, 1922, that's the moment our modern state came into existence, where we began to rule ourselves according to laws and regulations we had written. What had gone before in the year since the treaty was accepted by the Doyle and the, Br and the British began handing over power was a provisional government, not able to enact its own laws. In many ways, it was in limbo before the constitution was drawn up right where I'm sitting. And there couldn't, Shane, have been a more febrile time for the new constitution to come into being. As you were only saying to us a couple of weeks back, the civil war was really in its darkest and most violent phase at the time. Indeed, it was, it's only two weeks since I was talking to you from Kilmainham about the descent of the civil war into the phase of executions and reprisals and assassinations. And we're going to be looking at just how people on both sides of that split on the treaty had hoped just before the war started that the new constitution would provide some kind of a roadmap back from the brink of civil war. Both sides were hoping that the British would accept a constitution that played down the elements of the treaty that caused the split. The status of Ireland as a dominion inside the British Empire, the oath of allegiance for TDs, the role of the king in approving Irish laws. But those hopes were crushed when the British insisted on the terms of the treaty being fully reflected in the finished constitution. And the British were also under their own pressures not to give way. This is um, often um, overlooked in Ireland, um, as if the British were sitting there languidly, waving away all Irish hopes. 
The men who'd signed the treaty for Britain took dogs abuse from many quarters in Britain for having signed the treaty. And they were being watched really closely by, for example, the right-wing press, some things never change, to see closely how would they weasel, as the British might see it, on the elements of king, empire and oath. Also, and again, not really understood here in Ireland, this was not a straightforward two-way conversation between us and the British. Um, Almost all of the English-speaking world, the dominions of Australia, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, were looking over our shoulders, watching closely to see what concessions the Irish might get so they could look for the same. Behind them, you had the Indian nationalists who were looking at Ireland's struggle for independence as a template for their own struggle, and Jewish leaders who were looking for ideas on what a constitution for a new Jewish homeland inside the British mandate in Palestine might look like. And it's often been said that the 1922 constitution is an unloved document because so many of those British elements were included in its final version. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I said earlier it marked the beginning of an era where we could make our own laws to govern ourselves. But of course, the devil was in the detail. The anti-treaty Republicans rejected both the treaty and the constitution that it uh, gave birth to as essentially British documents, handing down freedom in their eyes, equivalent to the freedom that a prisoner might have to walk around the exercise yard of a prison, if you want to call that freedom. Uh, The prison in this case being the British Empire. So we're going to be looking at how hopes for a more republican constitution died. How the first draft of the document sent to London was almost literally, in fact it might even have been literally, thrown back in the faces of the Irish delegation, including Michael Collins. The Prime Minister Lloyd George dismissed the plan as a republic in disguise. He said, you're not getting that. And he warned the Irish side that Britain would fight to defend the role of the Empire and the King in the new Irish state. Mm, Considering how much attention is given to the drama of the treaty negotiations a year earlier, it seems from what you're saying that the negotiations on the Constitution were just as fraught. Exactly. Um, Again, this is going to be a bit of a theme today, Rachel, how little is really understood about uh, the process that gave birth to this Constitution. It's only been revealed in recent years how tense and dramatic the talks about the Constitution became. The stakes were so high. And Michael Collins is a, re- is a real indicator of, how of, the, of the stakes. Michael Collins was essentially cornered. He had run out of options. And Michael Collins was a famously opaque man who could tell 10 different people 10 different things depending on what he wanted from them. His diaries famously opaque. So very hard to tell what he was really thinking, what he, what he, what he really felt. Now, poker players talk about the tell, the, the, the gesture or the words that the person opposing them across the, the, the table give away what they're really thinking. In Michael Collins' case, it was his language. Um, when Michael Collins was cornered and he run out of options, his language just degenerated. For example, when he realised that Eamon de Valera was serious about taking the anti-treaty TDs out of the Doyle, his language directed at Eamon de Valera's departing back was essentially corner boy. And the, the British were alarmed at his demeanour and his language in Downing Street. And it was because, I think, at that moment, he realised. He sat across the table from David Lloyd George, realised the British were not budging on the elements in the Constitution that had caused the treaty split. And he knew then that his hopes for peace had crumbled to dust before him and that civil war in Ireland was now inevitable. Shane McElhatton, series editor of the Decade of Commemorations, broadcasting from the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin for Morning Ireland. 
And on today with Claire Byrne, a special Christmas food for thought with Panto Wicked Witch, Catherine Lynch. My mother is a spectacular cook, so we get all... Oh, fancy. Oh my God. She's very fancy, yeah. When we were kids, we were always asked uh, when we uh, came up from lunchtime, what did your mom cook? today and it was like uh, she'd have lasagna when we didn't have lasagna in the 80s like her and she'd have spaghetti bolognese or um, curries cooked from scratch all that sort of stuff so she was a spectacular cook And are you? Um, I love cooking. I'm kind of creative. Once I get cooking, I really do a good job on it. But I'm not a regular cook. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a person who would have um, the proper regular meals every day. I love, you know, if I live in town. So if somebody says, oh, do you fancy an early bird? I'm like there, you know, so. Uh, I know, but it's easier to do that. If yeah. you're not cooking for, like I have to cook for lots of people at home. So yeah. it makes sense for me to cook for them. But if you're not in that situation, yeah. I, I'd be there for the early bird pretty much every day. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. So uh, the, uh, yeah, and but like we're going to go into Christmas, we're going to be going into a situation where I'm not going to have any regular meals because I'm going to be on panto. So mm-hmm. it's really bad. So you end up eating sandwiches and you, um, you know, all that sort of stuff. How is, do you manage that? You're not somebody who'd be bringing in the packed lunch. No, or, I'm rubbish no. at that. I'm mm. such a bold girl. So the I'm like the one that'll be running for to spar for the, the, the bits and bobs. The bits and bobs and... <laughs> Yeah. You have to be very organised to do that. And when you You have have a very long day, it can be difficult when you go home at the end of it. Exactly. Yeah. To plan. That's yeah. Um, But hopefully now that all works out. But yeah. So. And tell me about your sister, who's a great cook as well. She's sort of inherited your mother's very creative gene when it comes to cooking. Yeah. My sister Mary is a fantastic cook. She um, has her best friend is Noya and she's a Vietnamese she has a Vietnamese restaurant so Noya uh, spreads the love and the recipes to mom and Mary so Mary when you arrive to her house is just an amazing cook and she also has a bar in her house so oh, her nice. husband makes or uh, creates his own beers and she does the big plate so she'd have a big uh, curry or a big paella and she's a real kind of Italian cooker in a way for it's for the family so it's big pots on the table and it's everyone go and serve themselves and she loves loads of people in the house so mom right. is the same she's like Grand Central uh, Station in the house so she's uh, yeah so it's always So they been, like cooking for the big gang of people yeah. and that doesn't stress them out because you know for some people yeah, that can be that's str- it kind tricky. of stresses me out yeah but my mom has a great routine because we have an uncle who's a priest who comes in to, for dinner every day so we have had such a table culture all our lives mm-hmm. you know so we've had the proper sit down twice a day so we'd have uh, the lunch and dinner so hence so dinner, my, dinner at one o'clock dinner at one o'clock you mm-hmm. know yourself that's the country that's, listen <laughs> it's the best way to eat isn't it the best way to eat <laughs> and it's probably the most sensible way to eat calorie wise but um, unfortunately I go for the lunch and then I'll have dinner with friends maybe later. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so your uncle, he, he comes in for his dinner every day at one o'clock and yeah. he gets the full He gets cooked. the full dinner, he gets the, the meat and two veg and then Isn't he gets he his tea handed to him because he goes home with a beautiful um, lasagna, a piece of lasagna and a side salad and mom always has a glass of wine in the like for him and the uh, one glass of wine a day keeps the doctor away, that's their saying and, uh, and they stick to that. Well, it's very... Very well minded. Yeah, now. He's very, very well very minded. Lucky. Oh, yeah. He is. So, what's tea time then? Is that sandwiches or is it just a bit of well, tea bit time of sweet is, cake? <laughs> no, it's it might be a little uh, curry or it might be a little oh. uh, stir fry or it's a little bit of uh, um, uh, this is, lasagna. This is, or, this is two dinners. Catherine. Oh my god, it is. But she has a she has, has small portions of everything. So oh, okay. um, yeah, so she's very much portion aware, which 
she's great. So uh, of course we all want to yeah. visit her house now. I know, after hearing yeah. that. she's absolutely amazing. That's, that is fabulous. <laughs> so that's the mammy's cooking. What does Catherine like to cook herself? Um, me, what I like. Okay, I like. I love to cook simply. So I like small. Like I just cooked a uh, caprese. No, I didn't cook the caprese salad, but I from mozzarella and tomatoes and the proper pesto and the proper you know uh, basil on top of it and then it's lovely it's one of my favourite things it's one of my favourite things but you have to have really good ingredients for that to work yes for it to work so I like things that work with really good ingredients like and with that I made an arabiata because I had vegetarians coming but I have a a a chilli plant so I took the chilies from the plant and then I had the garlic I had some wild garlic frozen in the in from the summer so and then you, I reduce the tomatoes impressed. myself <laughs> and uh, reduce the tomatoes. So if you use uh, simple ingredients really well, I think that's my favourite type of cooking. Sweet tooth or not? I don't really have a sweet tooth. I do for ice cream, mm-hmm. but that's about it. Mm-hmm. I, my, I, I grew up in a house. My mother, again, was a great baker. So it was always apple pies and rhubarb tarts and coffee cakes and all that. So I don't really have a sweet tooth. I have a terrible savoury tooth. Like my biggest yeah. vice is crisps and mm-hmm. nobody made them for me. I went and bought them. <laughs> <laughs> so despite the fact that you had the cooked meal in the middle of the day and then the cooked meal in the evening, you were still attracted by the, the crunch. Still attracted by the crunch. Like, who yeah. isn't? Oh, oh my know. God, absolutely. Yeah, who isn't? I think it's part of our culture, isn't it, in Ireland, that we like a packet of crisps. Yeah. But you wouldn't be tempted then by a tiramisu? Or, oh, I know. love a tiramisu. I'll, or, um, yeah, well, I do love a tiramisu. Any um, dessert with the alcohol in it is always <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's so, you, so you'll enjoy, will you enjoy your Christmas day this year or will it feel I will a bit be rushed, rushed? But I will enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what, we'll all have a little break from the panto and the panto will have, you know, been, it's up and running at that stage. And I just want to say that it is a big sp- spectacle this year but we really want to let families know that we have a family ticket and that we are, we're aware that it has been you know that finances are stretched for people so we have a ticket that's 25 euros for family so um, that means that your family can be two people you know so you get your ticket for 25 euros each there's tickets for 16 euros um, and you're trying um, to keep keep just, the cost yeah, down yeah keep the cost down and it's just it's just a really really beautiful mm. pantomime I mean we just had a little conversation before I came on to say how, you know, lovely a panto it is. It is the best panto and we have so many great people in it. We have, you know, um, Alan Hughes and Rob Murphy as the two funnies are just hilarious. Sammy Sausages and, yes, and Sammy Buffy. Sausages and I know Buffy. all about oh, it. I've you... been there every year. <laughs> and are you, now are you singing or are I'm you just the... cre- like very angry? Um, I'm wicked. singing, but um, basically the the Wicked Witch is going to scare the kids and going to make the adults laugh. But also she's just going to be that temperature of boo, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. so um, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, and we have people like we're introducing Kate Weir at Snow White and she is actually the sister of the of uh, Matilda, the new Matilda in Hollywood. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. 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 And we then went to see that actually. And Adam Weaver and Pamela Uba, who's Miss World or Miss World, Miss Ireland. <laughs> and uh, of course, Carl has the... Uh, um, he just like has a great temperature. He has all the elements, you know, he has the gender role reversal, a storyline of the good and evil, the slapstick comedy, the careful, you know, the eccentric costumes, all that. So it's just, it's well, a we brilliant. Look forward, we look forward to that. Now and it's panto.ie. Panto.ie. Back to our food, uh, Catherine. <laughs> and the last meal, if someone said to you, this is your death row meal, this is the last meal you're ever going to have, what would you pick? Do you know, I'd pick the caprese salad. I would. would. You? Yeah, and then I'd have definitely have um, 
Uh, homemade curry chips. <laughs> I thought you were going to go fancy Italian there. <laughs> Mammy's curry chips. Yeah, Mammy's curry chips. I'd have Noya's curry. <laughs> uh, I'd have my sister there. I'd have my mother there. I'd have all the gang. from And a bowl of ice cream. And a bowl finish. of ice cream. Yeah, to finish. Homemade ice cream. Right, we're all going and to Catherine's, Catherine's Mammy's house <laughs> for our cooked meal in the middle of the dinner in the middle of the day and dinner at six o'clock. Two dinners in Catherine's oh. house. Well, I'm in. That's Catherine Lynch from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line, the absence of taxis in the capital. Uh, we were going on uh, due to callers on Thursday and Friday about the absence of taxis. You would have heard a long report on the This Week programme on RTE yesterday. Um, long report, but very few answers from the National Transport Authority, despite Gavin Jennings' best best forensic efforts, as per usual. This is a, an email we got this morning about another incident uh, late night incident uh, emanating from Dublin at the weekend. Joe, I was listening to the woman on your show on Friday who struggled to get a taxi home from Dublin city centre and what a frightening, upsetting experience she had. Little did I think that the dangers for a woman trying to get home after a night out would come to my front door. We live about 30 miles from Dublin and my daughter was at a college Christmas party. She got the late night bus home and I arranged to pick her up from the bus stop as I didn't want her walk in the final leg of her journey home alone at 1.30am. As I arrived to collect her, I saw three young, intoxicated men get off the bus behind her. They were leering at her. They were trying to touch her hair. Then they started kicking the back of the bus and calling after my daughter. And to my horror, began to follow her as she started to walk home. Luckily, I pulled up and I got her home safely. Of course, I'm not saying these men would have harmed my daughter, but it's the implied threat, the air of danger, the feeling of vulnerability that was in the air. When she got into the car, she told me the bus was packed and a guy vomited twice beside her. All in all, a dreadful experience and so difficult for one bus driver to control. So what's the option for women who just want to go on a night out? Meeting friends, going to gigs, having a bop. It's such an important, formative part of growing up and enjoying life. I know I certainly did it, but something has changed. I'm now insisting my daughter doesn't put herself in this situation again and stays at home. It's simply too dangerous and unpredictable to go out in Dublin. What has this country come to when getting a taxi or a bus is just too risky for young women? From the live line in the afternoon... George Bailey moments and finding the light in dark places. Musician Carl Patterson on coping with social anxiety and the inspiration of music and the film It's a Wonderful Life when he popped into studio with Ryan Tuberty. Our, uh, you know, encounter is, is, is a funny one because you, yeah. you sent me on Instagram of all things, yeah. your video of your song called Bedford Falls and you it, it was this beautiful compilation of clips from It's a Wonderful Life which as you probably know at this stage I'm obsessed with and I know you're a fan of the film yeah. but your tune that you wrote called Bedford Falls that you put to it I was so hypnotic I loved it so I sent it to the, my friends on the TV show I said I just think this is beautiful and they agreed and you came on very kindly to, to perform it and but you, you said in the message to me that you know you had a, a George Bailey moment yeah. And I thought that's that's really, really beautiful way of putting that moment in someone's life, in all of our lives, where sometimes you get to the bridge and you look over the bridge and the water's choppy. And this is a metaphor, mostly. And you just think, I hope I can do better than this. Or sure. I hope it gets a little bit better than this. Yeah. 
Yeah. Isn't that what this is all about? This, I mean, that, exactly, talk talk yeah. to me about your George Bailey moment. Okay, well, uh, as I say, I'm as much a fan of It's a Wonderful Life as yourself, Ryan. Um, I've always loved the film. I think I was Willy Wonka first. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think maybe 2021, 20, I first saw the film. Yes. And um, it just struck a, a chord with me. There was... There was a scene in it that was that hit very close to home, actually, just um, over the years of watching it, because it'd be on the lot. Um, and there was two two parts, really. There was the, the scene where he's at the bar. Oh, but his knuckles in his and mouth. Knuckles yeah, in his mouth, yeah. yeah. And he's just, he's, just, he's just sort of really yeah. crying out. He's really desperate. He, um, says, he says something like, I'm not a praying man. Not a praying man, but yeah, yeah. There's someone there. Help me out here. And... Um, and then he gets he gets attacked and it's horrible and he it gets worse and then he's on the bridge it's the bridge moment um, where he's just lost he's 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 crying out yeah please you know please yeah. help please help yeah. um, and yeah I I I was I've basically had social anxiety most of my adult life yes I still have it I'm not totally cured I probably won't be but I, I'm learning to manage it okay well let, let's park this for conversation for a second and yeah. you, you just described the beautifully the, the scene in the film that, that 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 we'll get to in your life in a second sure. but social anxiety I think this is really important uh, talking point at the moment post yeah. post pandemic yeah um into Christmas we're all starting to be going to each other's houses we're yeah. going to go to office parties to Christmas parties to be socializing again it's a big transition from nothing you know, 2K, 5K, on yeah. your own, to everything. Everything, It's yeah. a big transition. Oh, so it's huge. That, that's huge. That's one for everybody to, to think yeah. about for sure. But your own story, your brother called you the onion. Yes. What, what does that mean? <laughs> Not because I'm, I'm smelly and... No, 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 I've just met you. You don't, you don't um, smell. <laughs> and you don't cry. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. I basically learned, I, I suppose from teenage years mm. through my 20s, I learned to keep everything in, Um Try not to show uh, anything in case I was picked on. So basically, I did limelight anything any, anywhere where I'd be kept, you know, so seen in the class or, watched, or whatever. Yeah. Seen or watched, yes. yeah. So I liken uh, having social anxiety to being your own film director, basically. Go on. So, and so like the TikTok generation, I see they're always, everything is filmed, every little bit. Um, but with me, it was like, I would see myself from every angle. I'd um, before I go out anywhere, I'd have this huge build up um, to getting uh, ready yeah. and trying to not look bad that I'd be picked on or you know someone would say slaggy or whatever. Like so, wear know. a plain jumper. Don't plain, stand exactly, out. Don't yeah, have the hair yeah. looking odd. Don't have anyone anything about me that someone might don't say. Don't give anybody any chance to to. Where do did it. that come from? Um, I know that, um, oh, well, I, a bit like the, you know, Joe Wicks, Mr. Joe Wicks, yeah. a, a bit like that in our family, um, Mammy, my mum and dad are great, really great people and they always have been, but poor mum had tough mental health issues okay. and I was so close to her mm. and, and then when she started having uh, her issues, I was lost a bit, uh, the colour went out my life basically and I, I felt like I was on my own and then um, I remember a couple of incidents of being really embarrassed um, as a child and as a teen and I think that's where the panic 
attacks and social anxiety started. So things were difficult for Carl during his teen years. I was just always feeling awkward, uncomfortable, and sitting down uh, in among people, eating, drinking. I'd be worried people would see me shake. Yeah. Um, I'd be worried about just any sort of embarrassment. Any were, sort. Were you of, a blusher? Did, I wasn't a blusher. Okay. I was more just. Uh, uh, I feel the heat and then so and the panic anxiety. coming. Yeah. yeah. And it was always then after that was now I didn't know what was going on, Ryan. I just mm. felt, oh God, this is my my lot. I had low esteem. I feel, felt like I deserved it. And I know that sounds cruel now, and it sounds probably stupid. But that's the way a lot of people do feel. I know yeah. that. I think it's it's critical to point out it's not stupid. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if that's how you feel. That's how and, I. And it's and been that's a, how I felt at the time. Precisely. Yeah, Nothing yeah. stupid about that. No. As far as I can understand it, that it it comes from, um, as you described, your mother's situation. Yes. And yeah. that feeds into your own at that point. Exactly. A young fellow. What are you to know? How are you to cope with all of this? Yeah. So it's not yeah. stupidity. It's simply navigating choppy emotional waters. That's and right. Yeah. You had to do that. Uh, which brings us to then you getting a little older and into your teens and maybe yes, going to college and what have you. That's right, how, how, yeah. did, how did that... Uh, that was very difficult. I mean, I was 16 going on 17, just finishing school, um, which to me is too young, but it's a lot of people are that age and they mm. get on fine. I wasn't prepared for college. I went to Maynooth University. Mm. I chose arts. Um, I'd come out of maybe a couple of years of having panic, panic disorder, in school, um, certain classes I couldn't go into. And that followed me to Maynooth then, the big lecture halls. I found it extremely difficult to relax. So I'd always be trying to focus. And I was really good at the kind of school, you know. I was, I was a good kid. I was trying to be good and stay out of trouble and do my work and all. But in, in Maynooth, I, I chose some art subjects I thought I'd be good at, like French, I think, geography, Greek and Roman civilization, which One of my favourites. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And... Um, it was, um, I mean, I loved the idea of going to college, but when I got there, I just found it difficult. And there's a lot of social um, side of being at college, mm. which some people uh, adjust to quickly. I just found it tough. And I, you know, drink was there as a crutch mm. um, just to try and yeah. get through it. But just the, that panic as well led to outdoor panic. So I had all this sort of lumped on top of each other. There what, was does, what does outdoor panic mean? Um, I remember it, it's the first time it started was actually going in the gates of Maynooth. There's a big cathedral there, a, big, yeah. uh, a church cathedral and uh, a big open space. And I had my first panic attack going from the gate to there. And and I was going, what is going on? Uh, you know, why, why am I getting this now outdoor as well as indoor? And it started happening going over the bridge as well. There was this bridge you used to have to cross over to get to the main campus. What were you feeling? What what does a panic attack feel like? In- oh, awful. Uh, just basically the um, the head spinning. Yeah. Um, heart. You're so focused on your heart. Mm-hmm. You think you're having a heart attack. What your idea of a heart attack. Um, and your breathing starts going really funny as well. Um, you just, the sense of losing control and wanting to be safe. Uh, wanting to run and get out of there, you know, and it was, it was very debilitating. It really was, you know. Could you make friends in college um, or were you able to function that was, way or was it all booze? I had some um, friends. I tried to I tried to be myself as much as I could, but it's very hard because I was always I was always on edge. Yeah. Uh, waiting for something to happen. I was always between the social anxiety very uncomfortable and then waiting for panic attacks to happen. 
Um, yeah, just always. So you couldn't relax? No. You couldn't never, relax? You couldn't never, be yourself, really? Never. Because you were worried what's yeah. coming around the corner? The corner, yeah. And I got through first year, basically. I got to the exams, and my two flatmates actually had to drag me into one of the exams, uh, and I passed it, uh, you know. Yeah. But it was just too much. It was just too much. And I tried to go back to second year, Ryan, and... I just had to tell dad, no, I'm sorry, dad, I can't, I can't do this. And uh, it was so difficult because dad had put, you know, it was hard them days with the money and everything else, yeah. you know. And uh, you feel he had put a lot of effort into getting uh, you there. Yeah. And you there was were an awful lot down. of that feeling of shame, you know, yeah. was there as well. So, yeah. So in the late 90s, Carl described attending the Matter Hospital and meeting Dr. Oren McCarthy. Because you don't have a disease or yeah. something necessarily like a broken something. Sure. I th- I, and your confidence is in the, is, is is you know go on the floor. You probably go well. I don't. I'm not worthy of going to hospital. Yes, I don't. What's yeah. wrong? With, why should I yeah. go to hospitals? So where, where do you end up and why? Well, what happened was, um, and I, it was. I think the internet was probably googling stuff like that wasn't quite the thing then. <laughs> you know. So yeah. um, I found in a newspaper um, a little small sort of uh, article saying, please, um, if you feel any of these. Uh, feelings mm-hmm. um, if you feel that you have um, are flushed in public or if you bl- blush or whatever um, will you come see this Dr. Oren McCarthy mm-hmm. and Oren to me is a bit of an angel he's my Clarence You're Clarence yeah. <laughs> and uh, he basically told me to come in we had a chat he said Carl you take so many boxes here because okay. uh, I didn't know what it was I didn't know what social anxiety was. I didn't know that's what it was. I knew about panic attacks. I knew that's what I was having. But I didn't know why I was feeling like this on buses, mm. in public, when I eat. Um, I always turn my back outside, you know, when I was 18. It was quite cruel. And um, he started this program. A great guy he, he is and was and is. Um, and um, it was a group of like-minded people from all walks of life and... You know, some people were nurses, some people were in finance, some people were stuck in at home, never left. Some people, there was an ex-international sports person and, and we all, we were all in the same boat. Carl Patterson from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.